Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Ravodio, and it's beginning to feel a lot like the time of the year when the LA Times drops its 101 Best Restaurants list. That's right, dear listener. Bill Addison dropped his much-anticipated 101 list on Tuesday, and it set the internet abuzz with thoughts and reactions aplenty. Congratulations to all of the restaurants who made the list. I hope you're all celebrating accordingly. Unlike some of the folks I've been seeing on social media, I'm not going to go postal on this list. After all, UPS has enough to deal with this time of year. I am, however, going to offer some high-level observations and perhaps a couple of nuggets of constructive criticism because that's just the helpful guy that I am. We're also joined by Father Saul today to talk about the trend of influencer-backed restaurants, and we also break down the latest season of The Great British Bake Off. Due to a little mix-up, we recorded both of these segments a couple of weeks ago, so if we're still dropping Thanksgiving references, fear not, you've not woken up in your own personal version of Groundhog's Day, we're just not very good at scheduling. The Bake Off conversation, though, is jolly good fun. We talk about the new host, our fave contestants, and we get into a pretty heated debate about whether this is actually a show about food or if it's really just vibes. Without further ado, ready, set, bake! On... Tuesday night at approximately 8 p.m. Pacific, the Los Angeles Times restaurant critic Bill Addison released his much-anticipated annual list of the 101 best restaurants in Los Angeles. This is very much a list that marks a very important marker on Los Angeles' annual culinary calendar. I feel like it is a moment that everybody who watches Los Angeles restaurants really anticipates. In fact, it may be the most important list that is released in Los Angeles. No offense to our friends at Eater or the Infatuation, but I think what really makes this list so important is the fact that it's been going for for so long. Like This list is a direct uh, descendant of the late, great Jonathan Gold. I don't really know when it began, but I definitely know he was already doing it when he was at the Los Angeles Weekly, the now defunct Los Angeles Weekly. It's not actually defunct. It just feels like it. Back then, it used to be called the 99, the best 99 restaurants. And then when he went back to the Los Angeles Times, it became the 101 again. So this list has been a mainstay of Los Angeles for a long time. And to get on it, from what I understand, is a true honor for the restaurant's I know that there's been a lot of reaction to this list already on social media. I've seen a lot of people, A, just celebrating that it's out, a lot of restaurateurs celebrating their inclusion. I've also seen some voices, though, begin to field some criticisms of this particular list. I've seen some people call Bill Addison tasteless. I've seen people take issues with where uh, restaurants are ranked on the list. Obviously, there's people who are mad that certain restaurants were excluded, and there's always people who are going to be annoyed that other certain restaurants have been included when they think they should not have been included. Now, I think it is audaciously ridiculous, bordering on the preposterous, for any of us to sit down and critique a list like this. That's because of who compiled this list. And of course, I'm talking about the Los Angeles Times restaurant critic, Bill Addison. Now, Bill Addison's process 
for visiting and reviewing restaurants is so above and beyond what most people do who end up criticizing him, it's actually laughable. Like, I don't care how knowledgeable you are or even how deep your experience may be in the restaurant industry is, or even how detailed your, your reviews are, whether they're on your Instagram stories or on some blog that you started. I just have a hard time that those people's process for actually studying and analyzing a restaurant is half as thorough, a quarter as thorough, an eighth as thorough as Bill Addison's. I don't have firsthand insight into how Bill goes about reviewing his restaurants. I have heard from a couple people who have you know, spoken to him or have heard through the grapevine how it works. Um, and, and from what I understand, it's something like this. Basically, Bill will go to a restaurant like a month or so after it opens and get sort of like a first impression. If the restaurant gives a good enough first impression, then Bill will return to that restaurant a few months later for sort of another shot. He probably orders different stuff. He tries to have sort of like a different experience in some way, shape, or form, whether it's like by bringing a different different group of people or, you know, uh, uh, kind of like just switching things up, obviously ordering different things. And then if it passes that round, he'll go one final time. And usually if he's going for a third time or even a fourth time sometimes, that means that he is likely going to review the restaurant. I don't know this process, like what that is, it's 100% accurate what I'm saying, but I'm like 99% sure that it's accurate, okay? So I don't know about you, but I've definitely offered my thoughts on social media about how good or bad a restaurant is when I've only gone one time. You know, I'm ashamed to admit that, honestly, but in this day and age, who really has time to go to a restaurant three or four times in order to be able to offer their, you know, uh, uh, super highly qualified thoughts? On the flip side, though, it's not really what people expect from, you know, someone like me who's sharing their thoughts about sandwiches on social media. I don't need to go to Bub and Grandma's three times to tell you that the roast beef au jus slaps, okay? But Bill Addison, when he says something, it carries a bit of weight because the way that he's actually gone about reviewing this restaurant. It's been super thorough. It's been super analytical. There's a process there, right? So the fact that we have a list that goes to those extents to really like comb through everything in Los Angeles, assess it with such a careful eye, and then it's all in one place, a list of 101 places. I think it's like a beautiful gift that he gives our city every year. It's a beautiful gift that Jonathan Gold gave our city every year before him. And uh, honestly, I just feel grateful when it comes out because, you know, it's, it's really just an opportunity to appreciate meals you've had in the past by reminiscing on them when you see them on the list. But also, it, it sort of shows you how, how much more you have to eat in this city because most people, even the best of us, have not eaten at all 101 restaurants. Like, I think if you have eaten at all 101 restaurants, kudos to you. But I think there's one person, and that's probably Bill Addison, right? I bet you other reporters at the Los Angeles Times haven't even eaten at all the restaurants. So that's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off by saying, because of how this list is compiled, it's ridiculous for us to even criticize it. That said, I'm going to offer some thoughts because this is a podcast. And what is a podcast for other than offering hot unsolicited takes. Now, I don't want you to take these as critiques, dear listener. These are very much like constructive criticism, okay? And they're also very high level, okay? 
first thing I wanted to say is that I think it's kind of silly and kind of reductive to look at this list as a list of the quote unquote best restaurants in Los Angeles. And that's really not a shot at Bill. That's a shot at the haters. The haters look at this list and say, oh, that's the best restaurant in Los Angeles, Cato, which got the number one spot on the list this year. Oh, that's the best restaurant in Los Angeles. And they just really get hung up on this word best, right? However, I don't think this list is really intended to, to be a list of like the best restaurants and how we define that word. Bill says it himself. This list is a quote unquote panoramic snapshot capturing an already blurring moment. What this is, is really an attempt to identify the many little tiles that make up the mosaic that is the Los Angeles food scene in 2023. It's really a list that aims to capture a moment. And, and I think Bill even emphasized this point in the 2021 list when in his upfront, he writes, with apologies to my editors, I don't really believe in the idea of quote unquote bests when it comes to the 101 project. Yes, this is a guide to excellence. It also is meant to capture, as much as a finite number can, the overall breadth and spirit of dining in L.A. This list is about the zeitgeist of Los Angeles. It's not about the quote-unquote best restaurants necessarily. It's about who is helping to define what dining out and cooking in Los Angeles looks like in 2023. And I think that that's a much more sort of noble pursuit and frankly, a much more beautiful list than just some of these like, you know, bullshit lists out there that try to rank like the best fried chicken sandwiches in Los Angeles. And I know that that is ironic because I'm literally on the verge of dropping a list of the best 100 sandwiches in Los Angeles. But you know what? I'm a charlatan too, okay? I'll admit it. Now, with that first thought in mind that this isn't just a list of the quote unquote best restaurants, I think it's a mistake to rank the restaurants on this list. I believe that ranking gives haters an opportunity to critique Bill. And here's what I mean, right? I think if you look at the lists, the 101 lists from the past, let's say, three, four, five years, and you took an average of who made the top 10 in those last five years, I think you would find that the vast majority of those restaurants that make up the top 10 year to year are fine dining establishments. Not necessarily like classically trained French chefs or anything like that, but restaurants that price point wise and dining experience wise would fall at least into the casual fine dining category and many in the actual like, you know, four star, four dollar signs on open table, like fine ass dining experience category, right? And I think that's what's naturally going to happen when you try to make a list of the best restaurants in Los Angeles and rank them. I think you're going to gravitate towards prizing some of those fine dining establishments over the more uh, sort of casual establishments. And I think that's a problem for Bill because I think it opens him up to a lot of critiques. I think there's a lot of discussion in the food awards industry, for example, about equity. And when we talk about equity, we're not just talking about, you know, racial or cultural diversity. 
we're also talking about the background of chefs. We're talking about sort of like the price points. We're talking about the types of restaurants. And I think for a long time, there's been this view or this sort of like entrenched perception that the only people who can get these type of accolades, like the 101 or the James Beard Awards or the Michelin Awards, are the white tablecloth, casual fine dining to fine dining restaurants with classically trained chefs in whatever tradition we want to talk about, right? And I think that there is a movement to try to really, really break away from that. For some reason, this list has had a re- has had a, has had a bit of a struggle doing that. I'm going to be honest. I think that it because it's ranked, and when you look at which restaurants get in the top ten, I don't think you can really make the case that this rest that this list is equitable in that manner. I just don't. And that's not to say that there aren't restaurants on this list that do break the mold and that do advance equity when we talk about it in that sense. But I I think it's just really hard to compare restaurants that are not apples to apples. Like, how are you going to go about comparing a Via's Tacos to a Providence? You know, like, I think when you do that, no matter how good your rubric is, I think you're nine times out of 10 going to put Providence above a place called Via's Tacos. And look, Providence may very well deserve that, right? But I just think you're never going to you're never going to break the mold if you're ranking. And by the way, if if Bill – and I can understand it too because let's say Bill did put Via's Tacos, for example, or Tacos Los Cholos over a restaurant like Providence. I think he would probably get lambasted by a lot of the people on social media that already call him tasteless, right? I think the solution here is to go back to the way that Jonathan Gold did – when he was at the LA Weekly and the list was 99, where he didn't rank the restaurants. He just released a list. I think sometimes he even released it alphabetically. And just to make it on the list was the honor. Like, why rank them? You know what I mean? Like, being on the list is good enough. I don't think we need the ranking. And by the way, I think the LA Times also didn't rank the restaurants in 2021. I think they didn't do that because it was the first year out of the pandemic. And maybe they felt like, huh, Let's not uh, let's not create any sort of hierarchies um, after everything we've been through. Let's just put people on the list. And I think that's the best way to do it. I think it's the most courageous and frankly correct way to do it. Do I ever think that they will go back to not ranking the list? No, absolutely not. And here's why. I think they will always keep the list ranked because it makes people angry and drives clicks. It creates conversation, right? It creates conversations like, oh my God, I can't believe that uh, Via's Tacos was placed over Poltergeist, or I can't believe that Cato is the number one restaurant, or Whole Bosch is number five. It should, it should be way, way higher or way lower. And I think that in, a, in an industry like the media industry, which unfortunately is pretty dependent financially on clicks, you're, you're going to want to keep that conversation going. And to foster that conversation, I think you need to instill a little bit of controversy, inject a little bit of controversy into these situations. And keeping the list ranked is one way to do it. Final big picture thought I have on this is for a couple years now, they've started doing two lists. One is the 101 best restaurant list. The other list is a hall of fame list, basically a list of the institutions, if you will, that have been around for a while, that that have been very successful, and that deserve to be sort of like honored in some way, shape, or form. 
These are restaurants like uh, Gela Getza, Golden Deli. The entire um, Grand Central Market is on there as well. We've got Jar. We've got Jitlada. We've got Kareem's Restaurant. Um, it's a list of places that are not on the uh, the 101, but still deserve accolades in some way, shape, or form. Now, I think the Hall of Fame is a bit of a cop-out. It's a little bit of a cop-out. It's an excellent way to give flowers to restaurants that have been around for a long time without pissing them off by leaving them off the 101. And, and that may not be the case in every single occasion. Like certain, I, I think there are certain restaurants on that list that could still make the 101, honestly. They're still that good. Like Jilada could still be on the 101, honestly should still be on the 101. And honestly, I think it's a little unfair to a restaurant like Jilada, which would probably rank pretty high on the 101, if you ask me. Honestly, it could, it could be in like the top 10 to 15 on the 101, which would probably give it a little bit more uh, cachet than it currently has just by being on the Hall of Fame. I don't actually know how many people look at the Hall of Fame compared to the 101. But I do think that the Hall of Fame is a little bit of a necessary evil. I just think that, you know, it is in the LA Times interest to maintain good relationships with these restaurants that are uh, uh, institutions of the Los Angeles scene. I also think that the, the, the bonus of having the Hall of Fame list is that it does open up some spots for new entries and, and restaurants that haven't gotten flowers before. So in that sense, I like it. But I just wish that Bill uh, was forced to rank those restaurants too. Like if, if we're going to rank them, let's rank them all. You know what I mean? Like let's see where the chips really fall. And that's how I feel about the Hall of Fame. Okay. Now that we've done big picture thoughts, I'm going to move on to a, a couple more specific thoughts on the actual list. And I'm not going to go like, you know, place for place because I think that that would be incredibly boring. But a few things did jump out to me and I just wanted to mention them. First, we have two Evan Funky restaurants on this list. We have Felix, which is like number 50 something or 40 something and Funky, which is number 20, 25 or something like that. I think this is egregious and I'll tell you why. First, I think it's pretty well known that a lot of the menu items at Funky are are pretty much identical to the menu items at Felix. I think it's like, from what I've heard, it's like a third menu items that you can find at Felix, a third menu items that you can find at Mother Wolf, Evan Funky's other restaurant in Hollywood, and then like a third original dishes or something like that. I feel like you've basically just given two spots to the same restaurant by doing this and therefore robbing another restaurant of a spot. Like, do we, can't we just like say like funky plex or something if we want to recognize Evan funky and not give him two completely separate awards? I think that's a little overkill. Also, I have my own issues with with Evan Funky's restaurants, but I have heard that, you know, Funky has has not been that impressive. So, I was really surprised to see it put at 20 that like spot number 25 or something like that. Um, but you know, I guess Bill's Bill's a Funky fan. He's a Funky head. What can I say? My second question is Holbosch was placed at number 5 on the 101 list. Yet, back in like July, it was named the Los Angeles Times Restaurant of the Year. That confused the hell out of me. I mean, if it's the Los Angeles Times Restaurant of the Year, shouldn't it be the number one restaurant on this list, at least for 2023? I'm not really sure 
why it's not. Does that mean that Holbosch has had some b- massive decline over the last uh, uh, four or five months? Or uh, does it just mean that the 2023 restaurant to- restaurant of the year actually isn't the best restaurant in Los Angeles? I, it's all very confusing. And I think that's what happens when you start to rank these restaurants and throw out words like quote unquote best. It just is really inconsistent. And it's a reminder that like this, yeah, maybe Bill applies some analytical and thorough thinking to this, but it's not science. It's not science. It's not art. And um, I, w- I would be really interested in hearing from Bill why Holbosch isn't number one. Finally, everybody on this podcast who listens to this podcast knows that Father Saul and I are absolute homers for Poltergeist. We love Diego. We love the restaurant. It made the list, but it made the list at number 101. Now, when I first saw this, I was like, is this a joke? You want to tell me that there are a hundred better restaurants than Poltergeist in Los Angeles right now when Poltergeist is literally out there making every single list, like it's making national lists, like it made that Esquire list of best new restaurants in, in America. I just can't believe that there are a hundred better restaurants than Poltergeist in Los Angeles right now. However, I thought about it a little bit more, and I think this is actually the perfect place for Poltergeist and for a guy like Diego, and I'll tell you why. Does the name Brock Purdy ring any bells? So for those who are not sports fans, Brock Purdy is the quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, and he was drafted dead last in his NFL draft. And the person that's drafted last, is it's kind of an embarrassing thing. You get a, you get a jersey that's called that, that says Mr. Irrelevant on it. Um, I think it's probably better than not getting drafted, but it's 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 kind of a ridiculed position and being mr irrelevant i'm not sure how many successful mr irrelevance there have been um in the past of the nfl i'm sure somebody who is who has more nfl knowledge than me can, can tell us how well mr irrelevance have fared but my understanding is that they don't typically fare very well however brock purdy was mr irrelevant and he is now the quarterback for one of the best teams in the league the san francisco 49ers And as I understand it, he's also leading the conversation for MVP, most valuable player this year of the entire league. I understand there are some issues with how we define MVP and whether it's just a glorified quarterback award, yada, yada, yada. But still, to go from being the last person in the draft, Mr. Irrelevant, to now being an MVP candidate of a team that's making a tangible run towards towards the actual championship... I think that's pretty remarkable, and honestly, that's what I view for Diego. I think Diego should wear that badge of being Mr. Irrelevant as a badge of honor, as a fuck you, I'm going to show you, and just take that and move his way up the ranking year to year with whatever projects he's going to do. To be honest, I don't know this for certain, but I don't actually think that this matters that much to the restaurant themselves. I think they're just happy to be on the list, but to me, I don't know. I think this could be like Michael Jordan in The Last Dance when he made up that feud with uh, with the Charlotte Hornets player where he was just like, okay, this guy, he wronged me and uh, I'm going to show him on the court how it is. And then he just went off on him. And uh, we later found out that that story was probably made up in just a way that MJ motivated himself. But honestly, Diego, if I were you, I'd just use this as motivation, my man, straight to the top. Okay. Final thing I want to say about this list specifically is that if we take this list and the rankings as as Bible, 
then according to the list, Bill thinks that Quarter Sheets in Echo Park is the best pizza in Los Angeles. With all due respect, I think that's a bit of a stretch. I, I love Quarter Sheets. I think Hannah Ziskin's desserts are fantastic. I applaud the fact that they're even doing bar pies right now, which I think shows amazing innovation and, and frankly, dedication to the craft. But I think just cementing them as best pizza in Los Angeles, I think it's a little bold. I think it's a little bold. I, I have to admit, I have to go back. I've not been in a while. But to me, there are at least three or four other contenders. And don't get me wrong, Quarter Sheets is up there. But to me, this says that uh, uh, Bill is at best pizza pizza illiterate. Um, maybe not pizza illiterate. He's like, you know, eighth grade reading level. You know what I mean? Um, I do remember him like writing an article during the pandemic about how good Elio's wood-fired pizza is. And then they just like disappeared off the face of the planet. Like they, they still operate, but like nobody ever talks about them. That's always made me a little bit suspicious about Bill's pizza takes. Um, but Quarter Sheets, congratulations to you because you do great work and I do love you. I just think it's interesting. I just think it's interesting. Now, the final thing I will say about this list, and this is for all of the haters, including myself, okay? I think the thing to remember is this list is not about you. It's not about you. It's not, it does, nobody cares what you think, okay? I know that I just spent 20 minutes telling you what I think about this list, but this list is not about you. It's about the wonderful restaurants that make it. It's a huge achievement to them, and I just want to say congratulations to them. And I also think it's really cool that Bill does this. I think it's an amazing thing that we have a critic like Bill Addison in Los Angeles. He's a nationally recognized, award-winning critic, and honestly, if you read his reviews, you understand why. And the fact that he takes the time or his editors make him take the time to compile this list for us. It's a gift. It's the gift that keeps on giving, and I will be eagerly anticipating next year's list. Now, that's enough about the 101. I think uh, Father Saul would probably want to give his thoughts on it next time he's on the pod. But uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about the trend of influencer and celebrity-owned restaurants in Los Angeles. Welcoming back to the podcast, a man who many are calling an uncultured swine because of his 2023 Spotify wrapped list. It's Father Saul. Father Saul, how you doing today? How you doing, man? It's funny. I looked at my rap. My, my rap this year was weird, man. I got to tell you. So first of all, the songs I'm not even going to tell you about and the, and the artists, it was, it was a strange mix. But moving past that, of course, your allusion is to the fact that the LA Food Pod on which I featured was not even in the top five most listened to pods for me. Can you tell us what the top five podcasts on your Spotify rap were <laughs> for our listeners edification? Oh, I, I really did not want to do that. It was uh, the Bill Simmons podcast. Don't judge me, please. It's just entertainment. It was the rights to Ricky Sanchez. That's a mental health illness. I can't help that. That's a Sixers <laughs> podcast. It was uh, the watch. Great pod. Very cultured. Very edifying. It was the low post, more basketball, and the big picture. Another great pod um, about movies and the movie business. So that I, honestly, got it's accurate. Obviously, I listen to those all the time. And look, here's the thing. Oh, so I now think, now comes the defense of himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The defense is simply this. I look at that and I'm like, huh? Okay. The reason is those are all long, either very long podcasts or podcasts that post at least twice a week or both. So the, I think the reason they're the top is simply due to length. Also, I got to be honest, man, 
I stopped listening to our episodes of the pod because I can only take so much of my voice and yours. Let's be honest. When we first started this, when we first started this, I used to listen to ours ad nauseum because I was like, whoa, daddy's on a podcast. Let's go. And then eventually I got over that. I should, I should start re-listening more. No, you know what? I think you gave the best reasons out there for why the LA Food Podcast did not make your Spotify wrapped. But the reason I would have wanted it it to not be on your wrapped is more like you've been studying the competition. You know, you've been studying the ringer so that we can like learn how to, how to take their, take their lunch, you know? Um, but unfortunately there's no such thing at play. Is there? Well, actually, I mean, look, no, not quite. However, you know how they say like 10,000 hours, you become an expert at something. I got my 10,000 hours of ringer listening, man. I've listened to them a lot and they actually do inform a lot of what I think makes a successful podcast, some ideas we have yet to implement and we should do more of. But yeah, no, it, it's it's less like studying the competition. I thought you were going to say studying the competition in terms of like other food pods. And mm-hmm. it's, it, I, I will say I like followed a bunch of them when we started doing this. So I could literally study the competition and see what we're up against. I can't even bother, man. They're so boring. They're so boring. Wow. We're the best Shot pod. Fire. We're the best food pod, except for our friend, at, <laughs> except for our friend of forking around. Love him. <laughs> he doesn't have a podcast so it's not yeah, yeah uh, my bad <laughs> yeah shots fired at every single other podcast except for the one dude who doesn't actually have a podcast understood <laughs> that's right um, that's right i just wanted to say dear listener that father saul's views are not representative of the views of the la food podcast as a whole um <laughs> so that's important to say hey at least your top five podcasts weren't like you know the adam friedland show or something yeah, as they are for you, I'm sure, right? We got, we got what, How Long Gone up there. <laughs> Some hey. truly cursed podcasts on that list. Yeah, no, my list was absolutely shambolic. But, you know, uh, at <laughs> least the LA Food Podcast did make an appearance on my top five. Look, I'm not ashamed to say it. Yes, it's one of my top five listen podcasts. But you know what? We, I, I feel like I have to listen to it in order to understand how to improve it week to week. And by the way, you will be getting a full list of pointers at the end of the year. Oh, great. Uh, I am very much looking forward to that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Look, um, enough meta chat about uh, podcasts and our own podcasts. Did you hear the news that pop star Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas, who allegedly is also a pop star, are going to be opening a vegan Italian spot in Silver Lake by the name of Argento? What do you think on this? What do you think about vegan Italian food? Uh, What do I think about vegan? I mean, I think it's doable. I mean, of, of... Of the cuisines, I think probably Indian and Italian, and Italian might be a surprise there. Indian certainly and Italian might be two of the most doable for vegan um, because you can have great vegetarian pastas. And and as long as you execute a pasta well, you're like basically rolling. You can do like a bruschetta with no cheese, easy. Like I'm assuming it'll be fine. But I do like that today in our newsy bits, we have this theme of kind of influencer or celebrity-led restaurants as we get into more and more. And that's a topic area of which this restaurant and others that we'll discuss all fit into. And it's an interesting thing. And I think what will really define the success of this particular restaurant uh, will be captured by an LA Times article we'll discuss today. And that's that's what I look most forward to is understanding how, how much the celebrity influence is really focused on the product versus yeah. just the fact that now two couple celebrities have a restaurant. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is I'm pretty sure they're taking over a space that was previously 
a restaurant owned by Moby, who I don't know if we can still classify as a celebrity, but uh, uh, <laughs> you know, basically there there are different spectrums when it comes to celebrity owned restaurants in LA. For example, there's an excellent vegan restaurant that actually does vegan Italian. Come to think of it, in Koreatown called Olivia, and Anderson Pack is behind that, and the food <laughs> is really good. I think the PR behind it was pretty good at the outset and it got on some good lists but whenever i've been recently it's been pretty empty and i'm i'm not that you know i want it to succeed but i wouldn't be surprised if i heard in like a year's time that it did not um based mm -hmm. solely on the fact that location and also i'm not sure that it's a menu that people keep going back for you know vegan italian unless you're like mm. vegan and or italian um <laughs> now sure. There are some successful vegan Italian restaurants in Los Angeles. For example, uh, Chef Tara Punzone has Pura Vita in West Hollywood, and they make really good vegan pizzas, really good vegan pastas. Also, the person who's opening this with Billie Eilish is a guy, uh, the guy behind Nick's on Beverly, which is a very good vegan restaurant sort of in the cool like Grove area. And he makes like Detroit-style vegan pizza there, which I had for my pizza journey, and it was actually pretty damn solid so food wise i think this thing this thing can you know go the distance the question is will billy eilish and phineas bring enough of that sort of like hotness to attract people no that's right i i mean i almost want to save it for the la times article part of the agenda but this is a really i think broadly interesting topic because there's so many different ways that a celebrity can engage in a restaurant. Robert De Niro is like a founding partner of Nobu, right? Like yeah. a lot of people don't know that, but he's just behind it, right? And it wasn't like a marketing stunt. Others, Trejo's Tacos and fucking Mr. Beast has like burgers, right? Where they mm -hmm. really, it's less about, I mean, almost the food, although Trejo's Tacos is actually pretty solid, but like the, the, the where the celebrity put themselves front and center in terms of the marketing of the place. But you see this broad like spectrum of how celebrities and influencers uh, use their platform to support and engage the restaurant, uh, the restaurants that they're trying to start. You made a very key point here. Like if I was a celebrity making a restaurant, like, well, that's another topic we'll discuss as well, but like partnering, given that I'm someone who's not familiar with the industry and doesn't do food, like as a day to day partnering with someone who knows what they're doing and partnering with mm -hmm. the right person is key. And you mentioned that for, for the Billie Eilish restaurant. So um, really, I mean, I, I, I'm excited to go deep on this today because I think it is a, a, a pretty compelling topic, particularly in the L.A. landscape. Yeah, so let's move on to the next one then. But the last thing I'll say about the Billie Eilish one is that uh, the name Argento means silver in Italian. So, you know, Silver Lake, Silver, Argento, we see you. We see what you're doing, Billie Eilish and Phineas. Okay, so staying I'm with this in. topic. I'm all in. I'm all in. Staying with this topic. This one I found absolutely hilarious. It was Woody Harrelson, Bill Maher, and John McEnroe are opening a quote-unquote conscious cocktail bar by the name of Holy Water in like uh, near the Grove, actually. I mean, where do we even begin with this one? First of all, what a weird potpourri of, of angry celebrities. Right, yeah. <laughs> that, that's right, at least from the Bill Maher and Joe Ma uh, John McEnroe perspective. I, when I first saw that trio, I was like, is this a cursed trio? Or is it like a slay trio, as the kids might say <laughs> these days? And, and Bill Maher, for me, is not someone I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of. But McEnroe and Woody Harrelson are pretty dope. Woody's got his own, like, Woody's a weird guy. But, like, 
I was just rewatching the Hunger Games movies and shit. Woody Harrelson is the man in those movies. I'm mm-hmm. a fan. I, from what I can tell, because this is also right next to Woody's um, ca- cannabis bar, right? Or cannabis, like, outpost. Yeah. It seems like a Woody-driven thing, really. And, I'm, and yeah. I've been on Woody. I think I think he's, like, an anti-vaxxer or some shit. But, like, you know, <laughs> what, 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 what can you do with celebrities these days? Uh, and so I, I'm still confused. And you made a point of this. I'm, I'm not clear on what makes it conscious. Like, what, what is, is the conscious part? Okay. To the to my understanding, it is the fact that they use reclaimed wood in the bar, and B the fact that they have zero proof alcohol versions of like the regular cocktails. So basically, if you are a sober person and you want to go enjoy the same cocktail experience as everybody else, you can do that. You just order like the zero proof tequila cocktail, right? Um, so that makes it conscious. I I'm not sure this is a label we need on bars personally. Like I feel like this is just something bars can do and like shut the fuck up about. But uh, you know, interesting marketing. I, I do think they're just throwing all of the marketing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. It's Woody. It's Bill. It's John. It's conscious. You know, and they'll just be like, hey, maybe one of those will be successful. The wood used to be wood somewhere else too. How about that? I mean. Yeah, that, that 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 is a little weird. It's just it's, I got I'm I'm just taking it as a weird marketing push. I don't think this place we known as a conscious cocktail bar in like a week. I mean, by tomorrow, uh, yeah. I guess cool. They have you know whatever virgin drinks every bar basically does. Uh, good for them. Good for Woody. Whatever. Yeah. Since you've talked about the LA Times article, let's talk about that next. So, the LA Times put out a very interesting article uh, this week by Tiffany Say. On influencer-backed restaurants and whether they're worth the hype. Now, these aren't celebrity-backed restaurants. We're not talking about the Billie Eilish's or the Woody Harrelson's of the world. We're talking about the David Dobrik's of the world who opened Dobrik's, D-O-U-G-H, Bricks, on on the Sunset Strip. We're talking about – Didi. 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 We're probably butchering that pronunciation, but that's a new one. And then Anwar's Kitchen, another one that yeah. opened up in the Valley, right? Even Fly by Jing, uh, their new Larchmont location called Sua Superette is being kind of called this because um, the partner in the venture is uh, some sort of beauty celebrity on, on Instagram. So basically the premise is like, are are these things actually good or are they just basically like – trying to tap into these people's existing audiences to put up a business basically. And, and even though the article does focus on influencers, I think the takeaway of it can be applied to celebrity as well. It's essentially looking at, okay, you're, you're having all these things and they don't even talk about Mr. Beast burgers, but that's like up there as well. There's a ton of these spots of just like some random YouTube celebrity, TikTok celebrity, whatever, starting a restaurant that's a part of a long tradition of celebrities doing the same. And this article references like Ryan Phillippe's restaurant and uh, Ryan Gosling's restaurant and stuff like that as well. Why? Let me, let me start with this. Why do you think famous people want to open restaurants? Like why, why that it's a famously tough business, but I, and I, and I have a theory on this. So I'm really asking you so I can talk about me, yeah. but uh, I, I'm curious what your take is. Why is there an, an, a real magnetism, it seems, for restaurants in particular from celebrities? Okay. I, I think the first thing that comes to mind is a Childish Gambino line that's like why every rapper want to act some and why every actor want to rap some. It's like the grass is always greener on the other side. Like you're, you're doing something for so long. 
a different kind of venture sounds interesting. I also think that specifically with restaurants, and I think this is honestly, this can be applied to why any rich person puts their money in a restaurant. You know you're not going to make money off of a restaurant in like 90% of the cases. What you're doing is you are putting money into the restaurant for access to that restaurant and for access mm -hmm. to the cool hotspot. Like let's say the investors to Carbone, you know, they're probably not going to get a huge return on their investment compared to other stuff in their stock portfolio. But what they are getting is they can get a table at the hottest restaurant in town anytime they want. And that's that's it's kind of like the private diners uh, club that we were talking about last week, where people pay twenty thousand dollars up front and ten thousand dollars a year just to get access to Carbone. It's like that, but supercharged. And that's why I think rich people do it. Hmm. I, I think that, that that's an interesting take. I think that's true in some cases. I think that's like the Robert De Niro case of Nobu, right? And like in mm -hmm. that case, that works. However, if that were true entirely, I feel like the uh, use of putting your own name front and center in the spot wouldn't take as much as much precedent, right? If it was that, I want my private table, my access to a great spot. What I would do if I was a celebrity is put my dollars down, get the best guy. I wouldn't have to market it. I wouldn't have to make it big, but mm -hmm. I would like make, make the coolest spot like Nobu and then I'd get my table. However, what these people tend to do is put their names and faces front and center and seem to want to make it part of their brand, right? It's almost a brand mm -hmm. exercise. My theory is, so I, I think you're correct for like a certain part of the spectrum of this, right? I think Gosling is like similar to this, right? Where where you go like, oh shit, that guy's behind this? I didn't know that. Yeah. And you might yeah. think like, okay, maybe it's because he wants to be able to, you know, really, really like, you know, have that exclusivity and have that as part of a real portfolio of, of businesses or whatever it may be. I think two things. I think one, yes, brand play. And I think two, like food is something, and, and especially going out for food, going to a restaurant, is something that celebrities do a lot. It's something mm -hmm. that like, like it's, a, it's a pretty universal experience for like, whether you're a young, old, whatever, like super famous, a movie star, YouTube celebrity, going out to eat. And experiencing those spaces, right? Great spaces, going to great restaurants that are executed well with great food and great vibes is something that you experience a lot. And I think people often get the idea, as you and I have, but without the resources, that we could do it just as good, if not better, if we had the opportunity, right? I, I, I feel like I feel like there's a respect for restaurants and like a, a veneration where celebrities wanna be known for being able to create and have their name on or face on a spot that people yeah. love. It's like a yeah. it's like an attention thing as well, right? It's like a I you came to my spot and had a great experience. I I think, right? I'm not trying to you know armchair psychologize, but I think that's like a that's like a part of that. Yeah. Um, no, and, I, and, and, yeah, yeah. I think that's definitely part of it for celebrities. I'm thinking of like, you know, Elway steakhouses and like, you know, even uh, what's his face? Shaq has like big chicken and stuff. Like it's not just right. athletes as well. Like I do think LeBron like, invested in blaze. Like, like yeah. yeah. Well, but that's more of an investment because I think it's different to invest in like a chain of restaurants that's expanding sure. quickly because that I think is an actual business opportunity. And I think sure, sure, sure. LeBron yeah, is yeah. looking to make an actual return on that. I'm not sure John Elway ever saw a dime off of Elway's, but guess what? He had his name up in lights on those steakhouses 
and could throw parties till till his heart's content. Or right, Aisha right, Curry right. at her restaurant, you know, in San Francisco. Like she's not she's probably not turning a profit at her you know international fusion restaurant in San, in in the financial district of San Francisco, you know. But I bet she thought she would. I bet. I mean, look. I bet they thought they would though, right? Like I bet they I bet they wanted to like at least at some level be like, "Hey, I want to I'm I'm John Elway. I'm going to put my name on a restaurant people are going to come because they love me. And I'm going to be known and make money off of this this like particular venture and get the attention and be known as a host. This great like, you know, you're coming to my celebrity house and it's going to go great. But I'm also guessing John Elway did not put as much attention into the restaurant as needed, as we learn from the bear, you got to have yeah. the, like, right. You, like you know, the blood, sweat and tears, all that shit to be in on it and make it yeah. successful. Guessing he did not do that. And I think there, so I, I, all to say like the, the, the way these different uh, ventures are successful is the way that any business is successful. They just have the initial uh, 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 asset of having a, you know, initial marketing push essentially mm-hmm. like the name and attention and media that can initially be brought in when a thing opens, but then it's all about how, how they make, they're almost like owners of sports teams, right? Or GMs of sports teams. Yeah. Where, just like really, really shitty matters, sports teams. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Where like really what matters is like, how, how much do you care about making the right hires about like putting, putting the customer experience first and all yeah. that. That's, that's what ends up making it just like any other business successful. They just have a leg up probably in getting initial investment and attention. So I think we need to make a distinction, though, between celebrities and influencers, because I think, you know, Hmm. all of the discussions we've been having for celebrities applies. And I think, you know, we're not usually right about a lot of things that we talk about, but we're probably like 65 percent right on this one. Now, influencers, that's yourself. I'm often right. I'm I'm mostly (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you think that now influencers. This is different because to them. I don't think this is necessarily um, a vanity play. I don't think it's necessarily just they want a place that they can get access to. You got to remember, like a lot of these influencers, they're still looking for additional revenue streams. They're, they are not set financially. Not not all of them, but like, for example, the person behind Anwar's Kitchen, you know, he could sust- he could say like, look, I'm making bank right now. I'm charging $100,000 for an Instagram post from a restaurant. And, you know, I'm making plenty of money right now, but I'm sure in their minds, they're like, there's no way this can last forever. Like, like, for example, TikTok, right, is already going downhill and people are reporting that they're getting fewer views on the platform. Um, Brands are sort of starting to get smarter about what they will and won't pay creators. And so I think these people are going like, hey, I need to diversify my revenue streams in order to make this whole like to really capitalize off of this following I've built for myself. And what is that following I've built for myself? Well, it's my brand. It's my name. Therefore, I'm opening Anwar's Kitchen, right? And I am the face of this. I think they, I'm not saying it's a good idea. I think it's the same thing with with celebrities where they're like, hey, yeah, I want to do a restaurant. I, I, I really like this, this uh, concept. It seems like fun. And then they get in there and they realize this is way harder than it looks, right? You need the heart. You need the soul. But I think for influencers, I think they're, they're approaching it the same way. They think this can be an additional revenue stream that's more long, long term for me. Not really thinking, not really realizing maybe in some cases, this is a really like you know, 80% of restaurants fail or whatever, whatever that statistic is. 
I mean, well, I, I can see where you're going. I mean, that my, my initial thought was, but, re- but restaurants don't make a ton of money. I mean, they got to have some kind of financial advisor being like, this is not a good investment. I like revenue stream. I, I, I see it more like revenue stream. Sure. As in a sense that it's a brand expanding thing, right? Like, you know me from YouTube, like the people who are online know me from YouTube. I'm going to get into the real world. I'm going to do it via a restaurant. And also Anwar, like there are some places where it makes more sense. Like Anwar's kitchen, he's like a, a food influencer to begin with. And people are like, yeah. making his mom's recipes. So there's actually more brand alignment for others. David Dobrik, uh, like, or, or Mr. Beast or whatever, like it seems like a weirder jump. And those also, those are also really rich people. They're, they're, they're successful yeah. enough where they don't necessarily need the revenue stream. So it's a, a brand decision to go into the restaurant business. Dobrik's is absolutely inexplicable. Dobrik's is inexplicable. <laughs> Mr. It's not Be- uncommon. It's not uncommon. I don't it, think. I, I think Dobrik's is an outlier because every single other one that we, you see in this article, I think there are different things going on. Like, for example, one of the really interesting cases that the article brings up is Schwartz and Sandy's, which is a bar that was opened in Franklin Village by Tom Sandoval and Tom Schwartz of Vanderpump Rules on Bravo fame. And basically right. they're like – the point that they're making with that one is like um, when the stars of the people wane or suffer, then the business can suffer too because you know yeah. that Tom Sandoval guy got into a huge scandal and um basically everybody started boycotting his bar but those people are, are just they like when you, when you see them on TV at least it appears that they're just genuinely passionate about bars and restaurant tours and stuff and restaurants and stuff like that like tom mm-hmm. schwartz's dad owned a bar back in minnesota or something so for him it's like emotional to like open open a bar in los angeles that's big and flashy and whatnot it's like carrying on his dad's legacy in some way shape or form now so I, I think some of these people have legit passion behind this too. I, I mean, like Dobrik's Dobrik's is unique in terms of the article, but I, I don't know if it's so unique, so unique in terms of where YouTube influencers in particular are trying to go. I think between because Dobrik and Mr. Beast in particular, who are like leaders in that particular sector, went into restaurants. I'm guessing. I think we there are others who are trying it, and I'm sure others who will try it more because people copy. And I just don't think like it's it's an weird and interesting choice. And I don't think they are going to be successful or have been successful because the ones that are successful, as the article points out, are the ones where there's a real attempt to like yeah. dive in, be authentically like engage and, and maybe Sandoval and, and what's his face are. But like but in a way where they like, kind of like you know, savvy and intelligent about the way they go business, just like any anywhere else. I really do, I really do think the analogy to like billionaires buying sports teams, yeah, is kind of accurate, right? And the, and the difference is like, like you see, I don't know if you follow football that much anymore, my man, but Dave Tepper, billionaire, yeah. bought the Carolina Pan- Panthers, totally eating shit, like complete. I think tons of billionaires and and influencers have an ego that tells them, hey, I've been so successful in this one walk of life. And I have an interest in this other walk of life, and I'm going to be just as successful in it because I'm yeah. right. And and it and it mostly doesn't work out unless there's like a real humility and commitment to doing it right. I still think that that's accurate for celebrities in restaurants, but I think the better analogy, if I do say so myself, for influencers is this right. So. In Hollywood, when they're producing films, and I I don't know that they're doing this as much anymore, but especially when the whole influencer thing was really blowing up, 
there started to be a bit of a bit of a movement, especially with the streamers, where they were trying to create movies with stars who already had huge followings, basically. Mm-hmm. People who maybe had never acted before. I'm talking like Addison Ray got her movie on on Netflix. King Batch, uh-huh. if you remember him from like Vine, started appearing. He he was this huge Vine star who basically started appearing in all these movies, right? Um I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if David Dobrik has been in a couple movies too that nobody saw, right? But it's because these studio executives were thinking, hey, these people already have millions of people who follow them on their social media channels. If we throw them in a movie, that is a built-in audience. And I think that there are certain restaurateurs, restaurant investor groups who are approaching influencers mm-hmm. in the same way saying, hey, you have a built-in audience. And to me, what I see is a built-in customer base. Let's use your name. Let's use your image. And let's put this on, on this restaurant and on this product. I think it's a, it, it's, we're sort of in the beginning stages of this. And I think we're going to see a lot of them fail. I think this is an attempt that may or may not be successful. My gut is telling me it won't be successful, but to me, that's what's happening. I mean, you keep making this distinction between influencers and celebrities. I don't think there's a huge one, but the point is the point. The point is well taken, though. Where it's money, there, dude. There, there it are, comes down to money. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well, 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 money, money, and marketing, right? So the point you're making that's well taken is that when these fail, it's typically because it's used as a Essentially, the, the celebrity and or influencer is used as a marketing stunt rather than it being an attempt at making some actually good film, TV, restaurant, makeup line. I think makeup is another area where this happens mm-hmm. a lot, it seems. Uh, and, and, the, and when they're successful, it's not because there is some attempt to, like, you know, skim off the audience or, you know, temporary or long term celebrity slash influence of the person. And when there's like a real... Uh, interest in putting the business and the quality of the business and the product first. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, and that's just that's how shit works, right? Like, and it yeah. will always work that way. All right. Last question I want to ask you on this before we move on to our uh, main course here, what would an LA countdown slash LA food podcast restaurant look like? Oh my God. Man, I, I mean, look, we, we might have different visions. We we were two people here. Well, how about this? Well, you you are the LA Food Podcast, really. So I'm going to try and channel you. Is that okay. putting my yeah, own yeah. vision? No, this, yeah. is, this is even scarier. Yeah, go for it. The, or I think the tension for that restaurant is going to be this. We like a lot of things. You like a lot of things, right? A broad range. You're eating 100 of three different plus, three different food items already and more to come, right? And yet we also, I think, so I just keep saying you also enjoy like an intimate and vibey and like, you know, personal environment with great service. I think those two things are in conflict in some way. So, I mean, for some reason, my mind immediately goes to some sort of like complex, like Disney World of restaurants. <laughs> Is that the idea? And you have like just a bunch of different options of this like. Uh, to, to go explore however you'd like and you can bar hop or restaurant hop, but in each location have a very unique and personal experience. So I'm, that's like just like the Disney fantasy of like an eating experience. So it's not a great answer, but if I were to channel you and like the, the dream fantasy, that might be what it looks like. I'm more curious what your, I'm sure more, you know, limited vision, <laughs> more precise vision might be for that kind of restaurant. Yeah, good to know that your vision for me is like Disneyland for like loser adults, basically. Um, <laughs> what well, loser? The, well, that sounds like a dream to me, man. 
as okay. I said, loser adults. Let's, let's, not do the, let's, um, let's not do the math on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I honestly think it's probably the same thing, but just like revolving sushi bar version. Like revolving sushi bar, except it's like pizzas, burgers, tacos, you know. Um, I don't, I'm not sure this would be a very successful restaurant, but if I were to just say like the vibe that we've been serving up for the past like three years at the LA Countdown – that would be it. So um, wait, no, hold, hold on, real quick. Because I, like, I, what it really is. Let's simplify this. It's not one single restaurant. It's an empire. And what you should do is this: after each year of completing the LA countdown for a particular like cuisine, you develop the ideal restaurant for that cuisine. Bam, pizza, the that's ideal good. restaurant, and, and and then like that's like the standalone, and then next you know, tacos and sandwiches, right? So instead of it being like, we're trying to do everything at once, it's a network, bro. That's good. Or it's like five-star chef where every year the restaurant rotates. And oh it's my like, God, I love that. I yeah, love that. so like we get like, we, we get like a premier pizza chef to run the premier pizza restaurant after the pizza year. We get, we get the best like taqueria people to do a taco, a, a taco restaurant the second year. And it keeps rotating every year to being like the zenith of one particular concept. Love it. Love it. Solved. All right. We did it. Okay. All we need now is investors, real estate, and people who actually know what they're doing. Okay. Look, uh, we've talked a lot about entertainment, but when we come uh, back after the break, we'll be talking about one of the uh, biggest entertainment moments in the food calendar. It's the Great British Bake Off. We'll be right back. Today, when you and your significant other are browsing your Netflix to find out what to watch this weekend, you'll see that there is an entire new season of The Great British Bake Off out. In fact, the season has been coming out steadily for like the last three or four weeks, but today you can see the entirety of the season, including the finale, and we're here today to talk about this show. Father Saul's already shaking his head. Are you not, are you not excited for this chat? I, I'm shaking my head because the season's been running for 11 weeks. <laughs> There's that so actually many. makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, because uh, I guess if it's ten episodes and it's one a week, that, yeah. that the math adds up that it would be ten or eleven weeks, not three to four. Okay, uh, thank you for fact checking me live. Um, okay, look, let's talk about the Great British Bake Off. So this was originally a BBC show. It ran for like three or four seasons, and it transitioned into Channel Four after I think three or four seasons. And for the last like eleven or so series. It's been on Channel 4, which is the same channel that brought us Five Star Chef, which we mm. absolutely loved and talked about on a previous pod. Let's start with this. Father Saul, had you seen Great British Bake Off before we started watching this series? Yeah, I had. I had actually watched one full season. I think it was, I can't remember which one it was, like season seven or something. It had like some, I watched with my family. I was down in Florida hanging out with the parents of my sister, and my sister threw on the season. It was an old one already. It wasn't coming out fresh, but... I think she said there was like particularly cool people on it. There was some South Asian representation and uh, we watched it. it. Wasn't very memorable. I don't remember much of it, but it was a good time to watch with the family. Yeah. For those who have never seen it, can you give a quick rundown of sort of like what the concept is, how it works? Yeah, I'll try. So it's basically a group of amateur bakers from England or Great Britain who uh, each week compete to see who the best chef is the way the show is structured is each episode has like has is titled some like baking institution pastry or chocolate or cake or whatever and the show starts with first a signature bake 
which is a challenge centered around that episode's title, right? And they each have to do the, the, the challenge of the week. Uh, financiers for the semifinal, most recent episode of this season, um, Great British Bake Off. Then they have a second challenge that's called the technical challenge. This is kind of like, you know, testing the, the fundamental baking skill slash instinct of the contestants. And they're given essentially a challenging dish to make, but very limited instruction on how to make it, right? Baking obviously being a science, not an art, requires a lot of precision and knowledge about how to execute each component of the dish. And they're given like the ingredients and like a sparse list of instructions, but not mm -hmm. enough to know how to do it effectively. Then they got to do it. And then they are blind judged on their performance, which is kind of cool. Then the third challenge is called the showstopper. And the showstopper is like a gaudy, like, you know, really um, presentation based dish where they're like, hey, you got to make some cool thing that looks like this. They are, of course, still judge on the quality of the bake and the flavor and all that. But really, I think in that in that particular challenge, presentation is of particular focus. Yeah. So that's that's the episode each week. And one person is rewarded star baker. One person is eliminated. That's I think you did a pretty damn good job. So yeah, I think that the key thing here is every single week is a different week. Like and, and the thing is series to series. I checked and it does pretty much go in the same order every single series. Mm. So week one is like always cake week. Week two is always uh, uh, bread week and, and, and so on and so forth. The, the other sort of like key element of this show is the fact that the uh, two judges and the two hosts are like massive personalities in Great Britain. Like they, they've taken on a very like a life unto themselves and, and, and generate a lot of conversation. The two judges are. Paul Hollywood, who has been on the show for many, many seasons, I think since the beginning, and he's sort of like, I don't know, the bad boy of baking. Like he's he's kind of like got these piercing blue eyes, and and he's, like he's he, the Tom he's the Tom Colicchio of the show. That's who he yeah, is. Yeah, he's the Tom Colicchio of, of baking and of the show. And his his co judge, who has been a judge for I want to say like the last ten or so series since it moved to Channel Four, is Prue Leith, who I did not know this, but she's like an octogenarian who has an incredible resume. She's like ghost written recipes for the royal family, which like I have a lot of questions about. Like why are why is the royal family writing recipes and why do they need somebody to ghostwrite them for them? But she's done that. Um, she she's gotten a ton of accolades. She's really overqualified, I think, to be on a show judging amateur baking. Um, but she's very much she's sort of like the. Um, I'm not sure there's a good comp from other cooking shows on. Uh, like there's no there's nobody on Top Chef who's really a prue. Yeah, I know. I don't. I don't think so. No. Yeah. She she is she is relatively unique. And that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then the hosts are sort of like the comic relief, right? They do the skits at the beginning. They talk to the contestants to like, you know, uh, provide a bit of entertainment while the, while the, uh, while the bakers are baking. Um, and the, the two hosts this season are Noel Fielding, who's been doing it for a while. He's the guy who's like dressed as a rocker at all times and has like, uh, uh, eyeshadow and whatnot and and he's been doing it for a while he's a stand-up comic i believe actually there's a first time host this season allison hammond who's a well-loved presenter in britain and she was replacing matt lucas who you might know from bridesmaids he's the british comic who like the bald comic who's like i don't really know how else to describe him other than he's uh he bald. was in bridesmaids <laughs> yeah he was in bridesmaids and he's bald and that's that's about all you need to know 
what do you think of the of the hosts and the judges? Um, so just of their personalities, not of the judging of the show. I think they actually pretty much hit. I think they're good. So uh, they're not as good as Top Chef, but I think for the for what the what the show is, they actually have hit a pretty good mix here. I know the hosts in particular have changed a bunch over time. Um, there's like a, a woman named Mary Berry and mm-hmm. Sue or something. No, that was the Who judge. Are... Mary Berry was the judge. Was the, Mary Berry was the judge. Okay, gotcha. gotcha. Yeah, and then Sue was uh, a host, I believe. And then there was Matt Lucas, who like everybody absolutely hated, and that's why they basically fired him and got Allison Hammond in. Right, right, right. Well, I, I, when I watched that season, one season of My Family, it was a different set of hosts um, that that were on the show. I do think they. They honestly hit pretty, pretty regularly. Like Paul Hollywood and Prue, I think as personalities, like are are a good presence, and they balance well with Noel and Amanda. Right? Is her name? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and Allison. I know, Allison. Sorry, my bad. Uh, <laughs> but like, and I know Allison's a first time host too, and we've had a lot of conversations about Kristen Kish. I think you know hosting the first year of any show is hard. But it's interesting because we, we talked a little bit when we were talking about the Top Chef host transition with Padma about like, oh, you know, how do you change the, like, might, might they have gone for a more comedic vibe, a more like relaxed host, blah, blah, blah. And then like, you know, left judging up to Tom, Gale and someone else or whatever it is. Uh, in this case, I think the two hosts really worked. I think, I think the chemistry between uh, Noel and, and Allison works already. Mm-hmm. I think Allison fits the vibe of the show. I think they bounced off Tom and Prue excellently. I know, I know Noel, for example, was also a kind of controversial addition because he was like a bad boy stand-up comic. He looks like Jigsaw from the, from the yeah, Saw movies. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he does. That's so accurate. Got, yeah, and, 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 but he's got, like, he's got like a decent personality and he's funny and, and it all works. So I think, I think in terms of the leadership of the show in that way, yeah, no. I'm, I'm, in terms of personality, again, I'm going to clarify. Yeah. Not in terms of yeah. actual judging process. It works. Oh wow! Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna have issues with the judging. I see. Okay, mm. thank you for that foreshadowing. Um, well, you know, I used to sort of like roll my eyes at the hosts because their gags are oftentimes really sort of like ham-handed and basic. But they've really grown on me. I have to say, like, you kind of have to like adjust your humor to like Great British Bake Off setting, and once you've done that, you can appreciate it for what it is. It's just like family fun basically this season more than previous ones they've gotten the tone right and i think that's largely due to allison's addition so i think she's been a great addition now for such a light-hearted show that is about amateur baking this show has had a pretty serious like series of controversies over the years they're just things that people really latch onto and take to social media and really just like destroy the people in the show about. So for example, Prue has gotten a bunch of derision, first of all, and a bunch of criticism. So she was criticized by eating disorder charities for her line that she used to use all the time, quote unquote, that's not worth the calories, basically, if something was bad. And eating disorder charities went after her for uh, using that phrase. She also (laughs) had a had a mishap one time where she accidentally tweeted out the winner um, of the Great British Bake Off before it was announced, and people just like totally went after her, saying that she ruined their lives. That this is the one thing they have to look forward to in their life, and she ruined it. She stole their joy. So she's been uh, she's been absolutely just like 
lambasted for that stuff. And apparently this season, because there was nothing else to complain about because Allison was wildly successful, she's also gotten a lot of criticism online for her uh, wardrobe choices. There was a really funny Eater article about this where they talked about it. And um, this was my favorite line from the article. She, the, the, the writer goes, the octogenarian is labeled as outliving her usefulness and her quote unquote frumpy dresses get more attention than her accomplishments. Sure, she accessorizes, she accessorizes like she raided a kindergarten classroom for discarded art projects, but does that deserve headlines accusing her of wearing ball gags and anal beads around her neck? I missed the last line of that. Uh, yeah, so what this is indicative of mainly, broadly, is a toxic fandom, which is mm. always something that should give you pause when it comes to a piece of pop culture content. And I think it is, uh, look, uh, we're going to break down this show bit by bit. This, like, I mean, the, the the one thing I might give some credence to is the eating disorder thing, but in all honesty, like, that seems more like an like eating disorder, like charities being like, we can get some attention by criticizing Prue, let's go. But I mean, look, I don't, I don't know. Maybe that message sinks in the not worth the calories in a way that's like negative. I'm pretty sure it's pretty clear the context in which she's saying that is criticizing the food, not the actual eating of said food. Like yeah. if something is not worth the calories, that suggests that there are other things that are very much worth the calories. So I don't really know how that lands. Uh, yeah, no, this, this is an undercurrent of people who are, uh, yeah, too obsessed in unhealthy ways with this show. Like you don't see this shit with Top Chef. I've been on that no. Top Chef Reddit, man. You don't, you don't see this. You see critique of like Gabe Aralis for doing like fucked up shit and people having like legitimately bad personalities and doing bad actions. They don't do stuff like criticize Prue for her outfits. So yeah. Critique number one of the show, fandom. Well, not not yeah. all of it, by the way. I think a lot of people like enjoy it for what it is, but like there clearly is this undercurrent. Some of the critiques I think are warranted. Like for example, one of the controversies from last season was that they did this uh, quote unquote Mexican week where they like oh, made right. tortillas yeah, yeah. and stuff, and the gags around it were just like really dumb, stupid, kind of racist. Um, and um, I remember this. Yeah, that's it, bad. That's not it caused thing. quite a stir. And honestly, I think a lot of that was pinned on Matt Lucas, who was led, led, let go from the show uh, because he was in charge of writing a lot of the, the gags and a lot of the, the sort of like worst gags were said by him. That one is, is, is more than just toxic fandom. But I agree with you. There is something I think missing in people's lives when they have to take the social media to just like criticize a, a poor lady for her outfit choices on an amateur baking show and being ageist which you know i would never stand for ageism that's that's just like wrong you know it's it's the one cause you care about so um <laughs> i think we can agree on that so what are your thoughts on sort of like the overall stakes and, and the challenges that happen in the show stakes are fine remind describe the prize what, what is the prize for winning great british bake-off Dude, that's a great question. I should have seen. It's, it's, I asked you that for a reason, bro, because no one fucking knows and care or cares, right? Wait, it's not really? a show about, like, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I mean, they, they go, go Google it. I don't know the fucking stakes of this show. They don't, it's not like Top yeah. Chef where they open every episode being like, here are the stakes. Here's what they're competing for. It's an amateur baking show. The biggest prize is like the positive feedback and ultimate title that the winner gets. But the winner, I'm guessing on this show, 
barely fucking matters. It's really just about watching people who are just like you, baking in your own kitchen, get feedback from Paul Hollywood and Prue. That's what yeah. matters. So the stakes, I think, are completely irrelevant. This is yeah. not a this is not a stakes show. Um, it, yeah, yeah, that's the it, you're right. It it's not a stakes show, but. What you just said is, I think, one of the reasons why the show resonates so much and why I actually actually appreciate it, which is, like, for example, this season, there's a woman on the show named Christy, who's a stay-at-home mother, who um, says that she doesn't have that much going on in her life besides her children, and that she doesn't have that much to feel proud of or or things like that besides her family and her children. I think she frames it as, like, I have nothing that's my own. And like baking is like her own thing. And when she gets a handshake from Paul Hollywood, which is like, talk about steaks, that seems to be like the highest prize on Great British Bake Off. It's a handshake from Paul Hollywood. Um, when she gets Star Baker, like it, you can see how much it moves her. And I think a lot of people that go about their day to day lives and don't have things to quote unquote call their own see themselves in people like Christy. And I think that matters, man. I I, I think that that connects um, in a way that Top Chef doesn't. Right. Yeah, no, no. It certainly, I mean, and we talked about this when we were designing our ideal food competition show. A, a, a competition between amateurs versus a competition between pros is fundamentally different. Uh, and, and I will just be upfront here. I think this is the time. Like... <laughs> oh, shit. In, in terms of a food, a food show... A comp like a food show. This this just does not is not for me, right? And it's because it's not a food show. This is not a food show. People need to understand that. This is like make a wish for British people <laughs> slash <laughs> slash like a British a, a zoo for Americans to go like gawk at how British people act and like their funny little mannerisms and being cool at each other. This is a vibes show. This is a reality show. It's not a food show. Like, and and that's okay. I want to be clear. That that's just fine. And 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 for the and it's only for the purposes of this podcast where we talk about food competition shows, where we watched Chefy on whatever the fuck Dave Chang show was called, where Secret we watched Five Star Chef, Secret Chef, right? And we watched Five Star Chef, which is like legitimately great, and Top Chef and the Fantasy. Like the, in the context of our show, like. Great British Bake Off does not belong here because it's not a food competition show. It's a vibes show. That was very much your <laughs> I'll turn the camera on moment. And, uh, and, and, and I think I know which moment I'm clipping this week. I completely disagree with you. Like I think, I think that what? this is – Okay, so I think what this fundamentally comes down to is you just don't like or respect baking. Like I don't think you see baking as cooking or, or as food maybe. And so I – I, I will say, like, as someone who doesn't have a lot of expertise with baking, I learn so much on this show. I, I feel like you saying this is not a food show is like you saying watching a cooking show with Jamie Oliver or watching a cooking show with, you know, uh, Rachel Ray or something is not a food show. I think it's actually closer to that than it is to a Top Chef. Because what I'm doing when I'm watching a lot of these bakers beg is I'm learning, oh my God, I had no idea. You had to like let the sponge cool down before you roll it up for a Swiss roll. You know, like the, like the little things that you learn on a show like Jamie Oliver or Rachel Ray are the same things that I pick up on a show like this. Uh, great point, Luca. How many Swiss rolls have you made since? <laughs> 
No, man, look. It's about making. It's about knowledge. No, I mean, no, no. Anything gives you knowledge. That's not, that's not the bar, right? And I'll give you – and here's a great illustration of this point. The judging on this show, right? They – like when you, talk, when you watch judging of Top Chef between Tom, Padma, formerly Gail, and, and the guest judge, that you actually learn a lot. And you can imagine the eating and, and the experience of, like, what the attempt was, what the try was, all this stuff. They, they, they go into nuances and failures on all sorts of levels. Yes, we know that cooking the protein correctly and seasoning correctly are key, but there's a whole host of analysis of the decisions. Paul Hollywood and Prue only ever say three things on this fucking show. They go, <laughs> it was too dry, or it was perfect, or... <laughs> The flavor really came through or you don't really get the raspberries. And then uh, the presentation's beautiful or it's not like it's the same. It's a repetitive show. The judging doesn't matter. Right. The, the input you get, like it, 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 no, no, it is. No, it fun. I, it is. I promise you it is. You can I, go I through look out for the, the I, comment on. So, so they, they, they do say a couple things again and again, and I absolutely agree with you. So they always do say underbaked, overbaked. They all like they all they do say that a lot. They do the say flavors the, there, the flavors there, but it's just a little dry. Yeah, yeah, like, fair, yeah. Fair enough, but they do they do say other things. I, I the way that they give that feedback, I think, is helpful. Like they're saying, look, and they're able to tell just by looking at something whether how it's been made. They're able to say, they're able to look at a little roll of bread and say, Hey, this has been underproved or this was overbaked or the seasoning was off. Or did you not add salt? I love those moments when you see like the baker, like baking something. I, I think this happened with Maddie, who's my favorite contestant on the show. He goes, um, Oh, I forgot to add salt. Paul Hollywood, when he's judging it without even like looking, without even tasting it, just says, you forgot to add salt. Didn't you? It's because baking is paint by numbers. Let me tell you this. Give me one week of going to like baking school, baking boot camp. I could judge the way they, the, Paul Hollywood and Prue judge. I, we, we, I could judge them tomorrow. I could judge food. I could judge baking like that tomorrow because baking is a simple science and you can very easily tell the failures because cooking is an art that requires decisions and creativity that requires actual judging of said decisions and of said creativity. But when someone goes, hey, I know that when you don't add salt, the thing looks like this. I can learn that tomorrow, bro. And so the judging, I mean, all to say the judging is, again, is not relevant here, right? Like, yes, you do learn stuff. The reason you learn stuff is because at one point in the show for like, the technical challenge, they cut to Paul and Prue in a tent describing how to make the actual thing that the, that the, the contestants are about to make. And they, so, and they literally say, if they fail, they're going to fail for one, two, three reasons. And then they go judge the contestants and they go, you failed for reason one, two, or three. Like, it, it's very simple. It's very simplistic. It's not a food show. It's a vibes show. It's a personality show. And that's fine. But it is what it is. I, I think it's a food show. It's just a food show for amateurs. And, like, most people watching it are amateurs. So it's like, I, I think it's just maybe for a different audience. But I, 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 do, I definitely think it's, it is a food show. Nah. Yes. It no, is. no, 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 no. It's a personality show packaged in a food show. It's like the, the center of the show is the ganache of the show is just personality and vibes and it happens to have a little financier around it of food. But it doesn't it, it doesn't the food doesn't matter. By the way, most of the like, food 
<laughs> you're proving you're proving the point because you've literally learned nothing. The ganache goes on the I, outside. I the financier is on no, the no, inside. No, 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 no. One, one of the contestants, I think it was Josh, put ganache on the inside. He did chocolate ganache. I noticed it because it sounded good. Did it look good? <laughs> it did not. Most of the food on the show looks pretty fucking bad, man. Does not look good. I would not want to eat that shit. Because it's not about the food. It's about people being supportive and nice and being built up. And then the heartbreak of them not making it, that's all fine. That's all fine. Okay, okay. We can, we can, we're going to agree to disagree on the food part, but we can agree on the part that this is about, this is about the people. This is about the heart. So let's talk quickly about the season. What are your thoughts on the contestants? Were there any that stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. So. I, I watched the show uh, episode by episode for a while and then had to catch up just in the lap, literally today on the rest of the episodes. And literally the contestants I thought that would end up in the semifinals are in the semifinals. Um, Dan and Josh, I think, are the front runners. I'm a little surprised to see Matt there. I mean, he's like the one I'm a little surprised to see there. He like had a bad first episode, but then it like rebounded. Um, Dan, Dan to me is like the clear front runner, but Josh could win. There was one contestant, though, who was like a Bangladeshi woman. I can't remember her name Saku. now. Who, oh, Saku, yeah. And she was, she she was, was Sri Lankan. Yeah. Oh, sorry. My bad. When I say Bangladeshi, yeah, my bad. Sri Lankan. <laughs> and, uh, Saku was the biggest. Like, she, she was why I would watch the show. The biggest yeah. sweetie. Adorable smile. Great personality. Such shit at baking, man. She just could not do it. But... <laughs> But but I was so I was still so in I was like still so in I really wanted her to win she stood out but otherwise uh, Dan and and the remaining contestants um, were yeah they're they're the ones who've been the front runners from the start I think you can like watch the first episode of the show and be like yeah I think I know one of the two people who are gonna win this and that's basically what I did Dan I will say really quickly and I know we have to go soon yeah Dan low key seems like he could be a serial killer to me. He's got, oh, totally. he's got a little bit – he's got a vibe of, like, skeletons in the closet. I'm, I don't love that. I think Josh is my favorite. Um, but, yeah, that, that's my thoughts. And the contestants, happy I, for them. I think Maddie is incredible. So he's, he's like a PE teacher who did not expect to get far at all. He's never thought of himself as good at baking. He's very much a bro. He's a West Ham fan. Definitely seems like the kind of guy, you know, would want to get a beer with which is how I judge all my presidents that I vote for, by the way. And um, <laughs> he has made it to the semi to the final now. And it, it's really kind of a remarkable thing. And I just love, I really want him to win because he's definitely the underdog, but he's, he's it's, this is why the show is so great. You see some people who you would absolutely not expect stereotypically to be good at baking or to be good at doing like delicate things. And they're doing those delicate things. They're pushing themselves beyond what they believe they can do. And it's a really inspiring thing. I agree with you. Episode one, I was like, Dan's a problem. Dan's going to make it. And he makes it all the way. Um, I don't know if I agree with the serial killer thing. What I did think, though, is I think there could be something going on between Dan and Christy. I think they're both they're both married, but like you know, you just saw some like exchanges. I know everybody gets close on this show. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some uh, some you know extra extracurricular activities happening there. I mean, look, as I said already, when there's a toxic fandom for a show, when a show tries to be so like uh, like overly sweet. There's a dark side. There's a dark yeah. side on this show. There's going to be skeletons in the GBB, GG, GBBO closet one day, and I won't be surprised to see it. Like Top Chef, it's all out there for you to see. 
Like it's all like like all the dirt, all that you can see it straight up. This show purports to be the sweetest, most like generous friendship show on television. That's when you get suspicious, bro. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and yeah. Go ahead. Well, one moment that that broke my heart was Tash, uh, the 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 deaf girl who was on, yeah. uh, didn't make it into yeah. the final, and I thought no. she was amazing. Um, but I to to your point about the dark underbelly. I do think it's kind of funny that like this show is so praised for like diversity, especially like South Asian representation. They had a deaf contestant this time around, and then the three finalists, three cis white, white male dudes, dudes. <laughs> rug, rug, rugby players, MMA fighters, serial killers. It's the whole gamut of white men <laughs> yeah. up on this show. Yeah, yeah. Look, okay. Um, look, let's let's end with this. Uh, who do you think is going to win? And I. I... I actually think my so the instinct is Dan. I think it's Josh. I think Josh is gonna win. Yeah. I think you're right. Head says Josh. I, I think that Dan is uh he's sort of like the Pep Guardiola of the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. He always tries yeah. to do too much and tinker too much with his formulas and it ends up biting him in the ass. And I think he's gonna do that again in the final. I think Josh is gonna take it. Really heartwarming story there with his grandma passing away and he does everything for his grandma. Um, I don't know. I find it to be heartwarming. You probably just find it to be like suspicious. 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 Was <laughs> Nana even her real name? And uh and uh, thing, I, the, I want Maddie to win though. My my heart says yeah. Maddie. My heart so, says Maddie. The the one thing I'll say here is when we did the Top Chef fantasy draft, you foolishly and stupidly decided to make picks based on like narrative potential, which is not does not work for Top Chef because Top Chef is a competition. For Great British Bake Off, it makes more sense. And I'll even tell you this, man. I was reading up on the judging, which we didn't even touch on. You know how they judge the show? Do you have any idea how they make decisions? Tell me. No. Do you? I I do because I looked it okay, up. So I was like, I was like, what the fuck's going on here? Now here's what happens. Prue and Paul sit there, and they judge each round one through ten. That's apparently what they do, like in the back, like secretly without anyone noticing. They they go here one through ten on the on the signature, one through ten on technical, one through ten on mm. um, on, on superstar break, and then if it's too close, Prue said, "This is quoted in media." She said, "If it's close, we totally give credit for past performance." Like we give credit for past, like, like if if they, if they work, which is something that Top Chef famously does not do. It's why Brooke Williamson didn't win her first season on the show, right? Because you're supposed to be judged on the performance of the week. And they were like, "Hey, if it works, whatever. Like who? Like if it's close, let's give it to the one that we like." So they don't say Matt, one that we like. They said past performance. They, she said one that they like. Go go read it, bro. Okay, well that's okay. If if true, no, no, no that's, that's, true, not that's, that's, that's not what she said. That's not what she said. I mean, she was she was like the one who'd been performing stronger, essentially, right? Okay, through the season, to me, right? so I'm a Brooke Williamson truther. I think she should have won that, and and I think they should have taken into account past performance. So to me, you're only saying you're, what you're telling me sounds like a perfectly rational that's way to judge the show. All fine, that's all fine. However, more importantly, because this is not a competition, because it's a vibes show. And because of the narrative arc that they've given Matt to date from episode one, where it looked like he was going to get eliminated to now where he's in the finals, I think it's possible he wins because it gives them this underdog heartwarming narrative. Like who knows how, unless he really fucks it up. If Matt isn't at neck and neck with Dan and Josh before the final decision, I'm going to know who won and it's going to be Matt. 
Look, to you, that'll be a travesty of, uh, of, of a show that's apparently not about food. To me, that'll keep me believing in the goodness in the world, and that's why I watch the show. Make-A-Wish Foundation, bro. That's what this is. <laughs> Last thing I'm going to say on this is that this show definitely underscored to me why Great Britain will never be a world power again. And that's because, that's because there's an episode where they're making like uh, pudding cakes or something like that, and it was a technical, and literally all of them, all of the five contestants, and this was like quarterfinal or something, they all underbaked them. Like they just served all of the judges, like basically just piles of yellow shit, like literally just like yellow batter. And the, the, the judges couldn't even eat it because it was raw. And everybody's attitude was just like, oh, oh, well, you know, like that is not the attitude of a world power. I'm just saying. I, I thought you were going to say Britain would never be a world power because he, these contestants seem soft. Soft, bro. You're, I thought you were going to be like, I could take Matt. I could take fucking Josh. They, they seem they seem soft. No, I, but, I feel like yeah. I could take some of them, but I, I don't know. I, I, I'd, I'd be afraid to meet Saku in a dark alley. Hey, who wouldn't be? Yeah. Look, uh, I'm going to spare the listeners shitty Yelp review of the week this week. I think we've been good boys. You know, it was Thanksgiving. I've been a good boy. I was a good, honestly, I was going to flip it and tell a story about how I was a great boyfriend uh, yeah. this weekend. So, well, nobody wants to hear that. So, Father <laughs> Saul, uh, I thank you for joining us. And uh, look, I, I don't, I, we decided not to make a bet on GBBO. We're going to save the food bet for another time. By the way, dear listener, food is the dinner where you have to show up naked for, a, for like a prefix dinner in the valley. Um, we're going to save that bet for the future, but I'll be rooting for Maddie. You'll be rooting for the show's cancellation. And I think we can uh, we can leave it there. There we go, bud. Good pod. Thanks for joining, bud. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks to our guest, Father Saul, as always, for joining us. And thanks to Bill Addison for just, like, you know, existing. If you like what you heard today, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, a review, subscribe. Seriously, those ratings, those reviews, they really help us make our way up the Spotify and Apple charts, so I would be forever grateful to you, dear listener. We'll be back with another epic episode next week, but in the meantime, if you're looking for me, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and threads at The LA Countdown. That's T-H-E. L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find me on Instagram at LA Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.